Hey everyone, welcome back to the Where Others Won't podcast. This episode is part of my birthday special, which is a mini season of seven new interviews that I'm releasing on May 25th. But before we dive in, I've got a couple of great deals to tell you about from people that I've interviewed on the show before. I know a lot of us are spending time reflecting on what matters, and many of you have told me that you're planning on making some big changes in your life. If you're feeling stuck and looking for a push to help you find what's next or just someone to help crystallize the path you're already on, I recommend you listen to my interview with Laura Gassner-Otting and then go and sign up for her brand new Limitless course. LGO just has such a refreshing, no BS perspective on the world and she's been through the ringer. So she's the perfect person to coach you through the changes you want to make in your life. So go to heylgo.com forward slash where others won't. So that's hey, like hey, as in g'day, lgo.com forward slash where others won't and check out the Limitless course. Or if you live in the United States and you just want some kick-ass coffee delivered to your house, head to bluestonelane.com and use wow25 at checkout. Bluestone have been great supporters of mine. And let's be honest, coaches love coffee. Now, enjoy the show. The dynamic duo with us, Adrian Gostick. How are you doing, mate? Hey, Cody. I'm doing great. Thanks for having us. Chester Elton, the second part or the first part of the dynamic duo. I don't know. Have you guys worked out an order yet? <laughs> Chester, how, how are you doing? We, we have. It's always Gostick and Elton. So it's, it's, I'm sort of the Robin to Adrian's Batman. That's the way we can. And, and he looks pretty good in tights. So I know, do look better in, in spandex. I will, I, will, I, will, I will own that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, if, if we ever get to work together, I want to be part of that spandex conversation. And, and in that, I, I reckon I could usurp both of you, but uh, that's another <laughs> conversation. <laughs> but we, we've just worked out that we have uh, a super Canadian show going on here, even though, um, well, where are you guys sitting at the moment? I'm in uh, Park City, Utah. This is eight for you. Yeah, and I, I'm just outside the uh, new epicenter for the virus in New Jersey, just outside New York City. So you're right, though. We, we, we're all lived in Canada for a long time. You were born in Melbourne. Adrian was born in England. I was born in Edmonton. And yet, Adrian, you were, you were Montreal and Edmonton, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right? yeah. Montreal, uh, BC, Edmonton, Winnipeg, uh, Calgary, all over. Yeah. Well, one step ahead of the law, basically, yeah, is what yeah, he's trying to say. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he didn't move to the States because he wanted to. He pretty yeah, much it was had, to. He had yeah. to. Yeah, I hopped the wall. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I might be getting towards that as well. So I'll, uh, I might come to you for some advice on how to get across. <laughs> yeah, good luck immigrating to the U.S. these days. <laughs> that's a real trick. No, no. Well, I, I moved in 09. The original intent was to go to the States, Chicago, actually. But then, uh, yeah, 2008, 2009, a little bit of a, a rocky period to immigrate to the in U.S. The market, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, we, we'd planned it some time ago, but some things got in the way. So um, thank you to you both for your flexibility with that. But uh, 
uh, why don't we start here? We're, we're recording in the middle of uh, the most overused word right now, unprecedented times. Um, you guys have done some incredible studies into teams and, and humanity and, and the workplace. And so I just want to get your commentary on what I'm calling the greatest study of humans and teams in our generation, in our lifetime, what's going on with, with coronavirus. So I'd love to just hear, you know, what you're seeing, uh, what you're hearing out there from your clients and yourselves, what you're experiencing yourselves and your own teams. Because this is truly extraordinary what we're going through from a, a workplace perspective, from a team's perspective, and even just humans in general. Yeah, no, it is, Cody. You're, you're right. Of course, we, you know, it's a bit of cliche now. None of us have ever seen anything like this. We have been through recessions before. You mentioned 2008, 2009. That's actually when we, we were doing the research for our book on culture called All In. So we interviewed hundreds of thousands of people through a, a, a research partner during, that, uh, during the worst of times. We found about 300,000 people in large organizations that actually did better than the market, and considerably better, like two and three X during the last recession. And we wanted to understand what they really did differently. And so that's, that's where we began our research for, for All In. What we found were these organizations during the worst of times, they really focused in on their people. Uh, while others were, you know, were entrenching, they were, they were fearful, they didn't want to communicate, they were laying people off. These great organizations, these great leaders that we studied uh, during the worst of times really forged their leadership abilities. You know, they engaged their people, they communicated more often, they made sure that they felt enabled, they felt supported, and they also drove high levels of energy. And so it was really cool to see what these great organizations did in, in the worst of times. You know, and I think the point that Adrian makes there is that's where great leaders really step up, you know, forged in the, in the furnace of, of these critical times. And it is really, it's really fun for us to actually in real time now, which organizations are really stepping up. And as Adrian said, the formula seems to be fairly simple. It's your people first, then your customers, and then your community. And the leaders that get that sequence really understand and really win long term, you know, as opposed to the leaders that say, first thing we're going to do is we're going to fire half our people. You know, they're, they're an expense. You know, they're a nice to have. As opposed to those leaders that say, look, it's always going to be about our people. If we don't have engaged people, if our people don't believe that we care about them, how can we expect our customers to feel the same? Does that make sense, Cody? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I've written about this uh, quite extensively in the past around, uh, you know, because we, we've just been through economic boom periods, if you will, uh, how, you know, just like you don't judge a business based on that boom period, I see a little bit of that in culture and discussion around culture as well, in that it's, it's not necessarily the best time to judge it. Like now is kind of really where you see uh, a lot of those, uh, a lot of, those cultural elements coming through. Do you really believe in your people? Do you really trust them? Do you, uh, do you understand them? Uh, you're starting to see those elements. There are companies where people are working for free just because they still want to be associated with that company, uh, even though they can't afford to pay them. And so, um, yeah, the, the ones that really put money in the, in the cultural piggy bank, uh, reaping the benefits now and and conversely i think some that weren't 
uh, are really finding it difficult to navigate what we're going through. You know, it's exactly right. Well, I, just yesterday, I ran down to my local Texas Roadhouse. They, you know, it's a restaurant chain, sixty-seven thousand employees. Um, while while the restaurant business has laid off three million employees in in the U.S. and Canada alone, uh, Texas Roadhouse is actually hiring, and all their restaurants are closed. They before they were ninety-five percent sit down in-house. Uh, it's a steak restaurant chain. They've gone to 100% curbside. They're, they're now four weeks later back in the black, and they've done it by getting their people involved. Their CEO, Kent Taylor, who we know well, um, he says, I got on the phone and I started calling my crazies. He says, because your rule followers aren't going to help you get through this. He says, your crazies will, because they're already trying stuff. And they're doing most of, most of it, they're doing under the radar. He says, and if you can get them to share, which he does, he says, then you make that mainstream. You take it and make it, uh, you know, make it. And so, you know, for example, some of them were trying what they call family packs. They would, they would put together these really inexpensive meals for people that could just pick up or, hey, they, they say, we got butcher blocks anyway. Let's sell ready to grill steaks. And they, they now are operating three takeout lines from each of their, their restaurants. And when I went in there yesterday, the bartender who's usually the bartender, he was out in the parking lot. He was the guy getting me my food. And uh, he was telling me how much money they'd made the week before. And he was so proud of it. He says, you know, we're up to 70% of our revenue we made before. I mean, that's unheard of for a restaurant to be doing that well. They've taken no government bailout. And so I guarantee you, when they come through this, their employee engagement will, will be as close to 100% as you can make it because they're finding ways to really listen to their people and get them engaged. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, lads, I want to get into uh, your latest book because there's, there's some flow-on elements here. So, you've just launched Leading with Gratitude. But before we dig into that, I actually want to go back to your previous book, The Best Team Wins, if you wouldn't mind, because uh, that's where I, I really started to resonate with your work. And even you know, from the first couple of chapters, it really slapped me in the face as I had never seen uh, the two topics that uh, the first two chapters are about presented in such a way and that were so reasonable and, and seemed to be the closest to the truth in terms of my observations. So they were understanding generations and then you call it managing to the one. So can we just start with, with understanding generations Sure. Well, we're, we're delighted that our book slapped you in the face. I think that really was our goal, wasn't it, Adrian? <laughs> yeah. And I said, how can we write a real, a real face slapper? We love a good face slapper. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't like a good slap in the yeah. face? I mean, yeah, if, you, if you want to put it on the next book cover, I'd be fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see your endorsement on Amazon that says, this book slapped me in the face. Uh, Jess, you need to tell the story of your, uh, your, your, um, your basketball coach for managing to the one. I think that's it, especially for this group. Absolutely. You know, it, it is interesting. The generational thing, of course, popped up because millennials were really coming into the workforce at the time and yeah. are now, of course, the dominant generation. Managing the one is, is we really focused on that because there were so many generations working in the workplace that we tended to blanket people. You know, we, we manage from our generation. And it became really apparent to us that the best leaders, the best team leaders really did get to know each of their players. And the example we use is, is Billy Lovett you know, who was a coach of a, an inner city basketball team here in New Jersey. The, um, 
the East Orange uh, campus Jaguars, you know. And he was is a remarkable coach. He's still coaching in that he took a team that was really, you know, hadn't been doing much as far as making the playoffs or, or winning any championships and really molded them into a, a really a wonderful team. And the way he did it was he treated every player differently. And so often I think in business, we, we think we're going to treat everybody the same because that's fair. Whereas if you're really molding a great team, it couldn't be further from the truth, right? So we're at a basketball game, and, and I had a kid that I was mentoring who was their starting point guard. He was number three in your program, but, you know, number one in your heart. And uh, Jeffrey <laughs> Duveston. So Jeffrey, you know, he, he, he's their point guard. And if you've ever seen inner city basketball here in the States, it's, it's so passionate. And it's just fast and furious and so much fun. So there's Billy, you know, he's, he's, um, he's coaching the team. And, I, of course, I'm a big fan not really seeing anything go wrong when all of a sudden he leaps out of his chair, calls a timeout, brings his team over and grabs his, you know, his power forward and just starts screaming at this kid. I mean, spit flying, you know, just dressing him up and down in front of the team about how he's not getting back on defense and he's not rebounding. He'd care less if he scores 40 points. He's never going to see the floor again and sits him at the end of the bench. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it was a fairly small gym. Uh, not a word was lost on anybody, right? So the game's going on, and of course he's got his, his sharpshooter who misses like four shots in a row, calls a timeout, brings the kid over, puts his arm around him, said, hey, listen, Aaron, don't worry about it, man. Keep shooting. Take a break. When you come back, going to need you. Going to need those points from, the, from beyond the arc. So after the game, I go up to Coach Levitt. I go, hey, Coach, uh, kind of an interesting approach to your two players. He goes, what do you mean? I go, well, you ripped the one kid's face off because he wasn't performing. And then the other kid wasn't performing. You basically gave him milk and cookies. What's the deal? And he just, this big grin comes over his face. He goes, Mr. Elton, because he called me Mr. Elton at the time. He says, uh, you got to understand that uh, that first kid, he a knucklehead. <laughs> I like, he's a knucklehead. If you don't scream and yell at him, he'll never get the message. The other kid, soft soul. If we scream and yell at him, not only will he not make another basket, he probably won't show up to practice. And it was just a, a really real-time, vivid example of a coach that really knew how to, how to get it into, their, into their hearts, their minds, and, and motivate their players. Does that, does that resonate with you, Cody? So much. And, and I've spent so much time delving into this from my own athletic history and, and uh, you know, having moved into, you know, I coached the National Aussie Rules Program up here and work with some pretty elite players that have come from elite backgrounds. I haven't worked with kids, but, um, you know, that, that's really where the rubber hits the road for us. And, and that's why I think there are so many more lessons. I was telling you guys beforehand, you know, the, where the whole idea of where others won't came from. Um, and even, you know, the subtitle is taking people innovation from the locker room into the boardroom. And this is the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. And that's why it slapped me in the face when I read the book is because, you have to understand, you have to understand how to, to manage to the one um, because you, you can't, in, in Aussie rules, there's 18 players on the field. And if you think you can uh, manage all 18 of them exactly the same, and there's 45 in the squad. So if you think you can lead all of them, you know, to a, a title by just treating them the same and, and uh, you know, saying the same things and just addressing the group as a whole, you're kidding yourself. And so that's why I'm keen for those kind of ideas and, and that methodology to make its way into the workplace. But I, I understand there's also a, a structural 
element to it as well, where even managers who want to manage like that and want to get to know their, their players are just so swamped with marking off timesheets and doing budgets and you know, all the things that they need to do to report up the chain, they don't necessarily get the time. So how, how can people, you know, maybe that are in that environment, like a big organization that, that have all those financial responsibilities and project responsibilities start to get into this managing to the one? Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's a good question because we hear that a lot. Look, I got, and look at you, you know, I got 45 guys in my team, whether it's sports or whether it's business. How, how in the world would, would I find time to lead people individually like this? Um, it's interesting. One of the people we quoted in The Best Team Wins was Dan Helfrich who, at Deloitte. Um, and I just looked up Dan. Uh, he, he, was, he was somebody who practiced this, found ways to really engage with each of his people. Um, Dan was just promoted to chairman and CEO of Deloitte Consulting. Um, so it's amazing what happens. Small with, company. Yeah, yeah, small <laughs> company. More, more than 45 people, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing what happens when leaders get this. People will walk through fire for them and look at this guy. You know, he's getting promoted because – he knows how to get the best out of his people. Now, this isn't typically a long process. You know, people like Dan, they typically spend, it can be 20, 30 minutes a month. But, but it's a very specialized meeting where they'll say, and typically, you know, somebody doesn't have 45 direct reports. Probably you had assistant coaches who can help with these types of things. The same in a workplace. Typically, a manager will have eight, 12 kind of direct reports. And if it's a manager of manager, they'll, they'll have people who can help in this process. So say it's 10 people on your team. Can you spare 30 minutes a month to meet with somebody about their career development? And there are simple things that you ask. Again, everybody's different. And the worst thing we can do is put on our glasses and think, oh, this person's probably just motivated exactly like I am. They want to become the next CEO or whatever it is. No, maybe they know it. Maybe they value, you know, excelling, but also, you know, time with their family. Maybe they're, they're not a, a ladder climber, but there's other things that will get them really excited about going into work. What we did, um, now it's, it's probably, it's been about six years ago, we developed what we call the motivators assessment. We developed this with a team of psychologists uh, to really identify what people are motivated by at work. It's an online assessment, takes 100 questions, takes about 20 minutes. And we've had about 75,000 people take it so far. And one of the things we found of the 23 different human motivators, the chances of you and I, Cody, having the same top five motivators in common is more than a million to one. We're all very different. And yet we tend to plug people into the, the same ideas. And it gets us in trouble as leaders. So Dan Helfrick from, from Deloitte is a guy who knows not everybody's wired the same I, that I am. I've got to get to know what, what, what really motivates this person. Remember him telling us a story about a woman on his team who was sort of the detail person. They would always go to her with the logistics issues and, you know, let's put Kathy on the logistics stuff because that's what she's great at. We tend to pigeonhole people by their strengths. He says, so one day I, I started doing this with, with Kathy. I sat down with her and I said, what would you like to do? She says, I'd love to be creative. I'd love to have a chance to, uh, to run a project and to use my creativity instead of just being the logistics person each time. He says, so we gave her that opportunity. She was still doing her logistics stuff she was good at. He says, but her engagement just soared because we gave her something that she wanted to do. It's such a simple idea, but so few managers get this. Yeah, and 
from memory, I think you guys had a, an example of a, a similar idea where uh, someone on a team, I think it, it was in Best Team Wins, uh, they were a photographer, but then maybe they were in the accounting department or something like that. And so they decided letting the person come and photograph the, you know, the, the, the events. Um, the, the answer, the answer to the question, funnily enough, is ask, like ask, <laughs> ask what people are interested in, ask how they like to be talked to. Um, that's how I've tried to solve the problem is, and again, uh, sports is a lot, is a lot more straightforward in that there isn't kind of this murky, you know, career, um, thing sweeping over this adversarial, um, you know, employer employee relationship that we tend to have in the workplace. But having just asked my players how they like to be talked to if things are going well, if, if they need to fix something, most of them can tell me straight away. And just so knowing that um, is, is power, obviously. Um, and then it, it allows, it, there's a snowball effect. So when you're talking about it takes a, a lot of time, it does take a lot of time to get started. But there is a snowball effect once you've started to learn about the, the people and uh, it's more maintenance then rather than having to spend the same amount of time with them, you know, every week or month or whatever it may be for 10 years. Right. And I think, Cody, you know, the one thing you're, you're talking about here is, is the intentionality of what they're doing, right? Uh, I love the two words that are associated with, uh, with this, and that's be very intentional about getting to know your players, getting to know your team, and being very disciplined about it. You know, Adrian says, look, can you free up, you know, 30 minutes a month? Well, you probably can if you're disciplined enough to do it. You can always find an excuse as to why you can't. You know, one of our, our one of the biggest excuses uh, executives give us, and we're both doing a lot more executive coaching these days, is, well, I'd do more if I just had the time. Well, you know, you can't make time. You need to find the time. And that's where the discipline comes in. To your point, there's maybe some heavy lifting at the beginning. And then it's very much the flywheel rule, right? It takes a lot to get the flywheel running. Once it's there, it's just a tap. You know, your, your initial meetings may be 30 minutes to an hour, and then it's and it's a five or 10 minute check-in. People get into the routine. You can get to the issues issues much, much quicker. And it's so funny because, you know, you, you said, well, I asked my players, how do you want me to coach you? It's such common sense. Well, how do I know how to, how to coach them? Well, uh, I don't know. Call me crazy. Why don't you ask them? <laughs> They'll probably tell you, you know. <laughs> right. And and so that that common sense that's uncommonly practiced somehow gets lost in the crush of business or even the crush of coaching. And it is it is funny that it does seem so obvious, and yet it's it's so often not done. Yeah, and and I think you guys wrote something similar along these lines of you know it's time to personalize management. And just like it drives like customer loyalty and enthusiasm, right? Like brand loyalty. And, and we start to think about that. And it was a similar idea why I talked about like people innovation. So if we thought of our people as a product and we stripped everything back and we were looking to innovate and, and so we, uh, you know, we, we take away all the elements and we look at them, does this make sense? If we treated our, our people like that, we would ask. And if we, we treated our people like that, you know, we would say, well, yeah, you know, we've got examples of products, how are products built and how do they drive engagement and loyalty and and it's personalization at the moment. Everyone wants a different banking experience. Everyone wants a different accounting experience. Uh, and that's just a, another manifestation of talking about people and how they want to experience the world. So, um, yeah, I think the answer to the question is is start. 
try to start to build that uh, that knowledge of the people that you're working with. And, and often the easiest place to start is things that are outside of the realm that you're in, so outside of work. What are you actually interested in away from work? Oh, that's a great idea. And you're exactly right about the the personalization of our consumer experience. I remember last night I type in, uh, you know, go into Netflix um, and it says, hey, because you watched uh, Tiger King, you'll probably be interested in this uh, Ted Bundy documentary. It's like, really? <laughs> but, I, love that, I love that you watched the Tiger King. <laughs> that's, that's a little insight into Adrian's time right there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so yeah. Uh, but the thing is, you're exactly right. What can we do to what can we do to personalize this experience for our employees? You know, it used to be that we would say, hey, you know, we treat everybody the same because that's fair. We actually found out that was a terrible way to manage people. You know, everybody is very different. And what's going to motivate one is going to be very different. You know, what we find is that, no, we treat people as individuals, especially in their career development. You know, in the rules, we have to treat everybody the same. If, you know, somebody sexually harasses somebody in the office, you know, they're gone. The rules are the rules, but the way we motivate people is very different. Yeah, hundred percent. So let me move us on to your latest book, Gratitude. Such a huge topic right now, and you guys have attacked it. Uh, where where did the idea come from? Like, what was the catalyst moment for for writing Leading with Gratitude? You know, that, that story is actually a, a really fun one. We, we've written several books on recognition in the workplace, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a carrot a day, the 24 carat manager, you know, leading with carrots and, and so on. And the carrot principle really our seminal book on that based in really rock solid research. And at the time we were working for a recognition company. And so this idea of having a recognition platform and, and interacting and giving people, you know, the tools to present an award, you know, for sales or service or, or length of service, whatever it might have been, was was really, I think, a breakthrough book. And then it tied to, you know, when I felt honored and recognized, good things happened, right? And attendance uh, went up, uh, you know, engagement went up and customer service went up. Well, as, as we progressed in our work and we wrote our book all in on culture, it became very apparent that if you didn't get the culture right, the recognition didn't matter, Right. The culture has to be right. So as we took a deeper dive into teams and culture and motivation, it's very clear that the leader really does set the tone and that the best leaders that we had gotten a chance to interview were those that led from a place of deep gratitude. You know, they really did appreciate the people that were in and around them. They appreciate an appreciation for their customers and their communities. And they expressed it quite freely. It was above and beyond their their platforms and the, and the plaques and so on, which I think are are important and have their place. It was much more of an emotional connection to the people that they serve, the communities that they that they serve with their products and so on. And Adrian and I have, have become part of this leadership group that's led by uh, Marshall Goldsmith. He calls it the MG 100, which is kind of a misnomer because I think there's like 250 people in the in the in the group now. It's kind of like the uh, the Pac-10 that has 12 teams. Whatever. Yeah, right. uh, and 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 as we got to know them, and we started to to really get into this idea of the extraordinary leader, gratitude kept coming up again and again. And so for us, it was a really natural progression from the recognition to to gratitude, uh, along with all the leadership work we've done. So what would you add to that, Adrian? Yeah, you know, what was interesting is we were sitting around with, with Marshall Goldsmith one night, we were talking about this idea of gratitude, and, and we've all been executive coaches for a long time. And 
we sort of said, you know, it's interesting that everybody we coach, uh, in most cases, they're, they're, the reason they're getting a coach is they've, they've sort of stalled in their career. And they're not as good as this idea of gratitude. Um, we, but if we did a poll, probably 100% of them would say, yeah, no, I know recognizing, rewarding my people is important. And yet, why do we all <laughs> suck it? Um, and so that's really, that's where we began this process is understanding why in the world, is, you know, what else in the world do we all know is good for us? And we all do really, really badly. I mean, maybe exercise, maybe eating right, you know, but, uh, but this one actually helps our business. It helps our, so what were the inhibitors that were keeping people back from, from now? And it's not just, you know, again, back to the sport. It's not just high five and all your guys when they come off the field. Right. That's easy. Anybody can do that. You know, the great coaches, the great leaders in business, they get to know, as we mentioned earlier, they get to know their people individually, but they're also seeing value that's being created. Don't you love to play for a coach who knows specifically what you do that makes the team better? And it's not just, hey, great job, everyone. Everybody sure worked hard today. That means nothing, right? You know, oh, thanks, boss. You know, sure means a lot. Um, versus those, man those managers who really specifically get to know what you do and the value that you're creating. So, so we began the first part of the book with an analysis of why we don't do it, the psychology. It's fun. It's interesting. And I think, I think it's even kind of funny and, and eye-opening in a lot of cases. And we, and we should probably see ourselves in, in a lot of those examples. But the majority of the book is spent on, of leading with gratitude, is spent on how you do this, how you see value that's created, and then how you express it in creative and really meaningful ways. So this is what you call the, the you call the gratitude gap. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. That gap that we know we should do it, right. and yet we don't. <laughs> yeah, the, the numbers are really stark, by the way. You know, that, that gap in gratitude. We said to, to leaders, how many of you think you're above average in giving appreciation and, and gratitude? You know, and uh, what was the number? It was like uh, yeah, sixty-seven percent. Think yeah, sixty-seven percent above average. And yeah, so, no, I'm really good at this. Then we asked their direct reports, and it was like thirty-two <laughs> percent agreed with them. You know, like, you think you're really good. You're the only one that thinks that, by the way, boss. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it it was really stark. And and the other the other myths that we dispelled in the book as well. You know, this myth that fear is the best motivator, and you've probably seen that a lot in sports. You know, put the fear of God in those. Uh, you know, you're going to lose your spot on the team and you can get some short-term bursts of real productivity, you know, through fear. And yet if you're building that great culture, that winning culture, that's going to, you know, leave a legacy and, and continue on, you understand that you're going to get a lot more out of people uh, leading with gratitude than you're leading with fear. And, and the numbers are very stark there as well. Yeah. I, I've written my book about this principle and, and, you know, I know you guys have done a, a ton of work around the idea of carrots and, and motivation and, and uh, to your point, you know, I wrote about it's at a certain point, it is carrot and stick, not carrot or stick, uh, like both are useful. But, but to your point there, Chester, knowing the difference between the two, being aware of, you know, that you probably, you might get two sticks per season, for instance, where you just walk in at halftime and, and, and deliver a, uh, a particular halftime speech you don't get to do that very often. Whereas traditionally that's been the modus operandi for most coaches is to just go into every scenario and just blast everyone all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it wears thin very quickly. It wears thin on the, on the players. It wears on the coach as well. 
and, and yeah, unfortunately that kind of idea also flows over to, to the workplace as well. Yeah, well, we, we, we make a bit of a joke of it in the book. And, you know, you remember this, Adrian, the, the talk of the water cooler, where you say, uh, you know, I, bosses will say, I don't care if they like me as long as they respect me, right? And say, <laughs> can you imagine, you know, two people at the water cooler saying, well, I just, you know, I hate my boss's guts. Oh, yeah, the guy's just, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a waste of a human being, you know, he's, he's right up there with Himmler and Hitler, you know, uh, but you got to <laughs> respect him. Oh, yeah, total respect. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that just, they just, it just doesn't happen, right? You can't really truly respect someone and really want to go the extra mile if there isn't some kind of relationship that's, that's meaningful. And obviously, those meaningful relationships are, are born a lot more out of positive interactions than, than the negative. I, I always love the old far side cartoon, you know, the, the guy's rowing in the Viking ship when the guy with the whip says, look, the beatings are going to continue until morale improves. You know, <laughs> so, so cheer up. Uh, to revisit something that we, we touched on earlier when I was, I was talking about uh, best team wins and, and your exploration of generations, you also talk about, a, a, you know, the responses of millennials and, and like tens of thousands in terms of what they're actually seeking. And am I right in saying that you found that it was clear direction and guidance? Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. We've, we've actually got some good data on millennials. A lot of times you'll have a millennial expert. I'm who, a millennial, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so you're an expert. So, so I hope you agree. But yeah, a lot of times millennial experts are like, you know, like you say, Cody, well, I'm, I'm 30. I'm a millennial expert. And we, what we've got is we're not millennials, but we've got a lot of data. So we're, we're drawing in a big, broad brush. Not everybody is the same. But what we did find with that big, broad brush is some, some kind of a haze about the millennial generation and now Gen Z coming in as well. You know, one of the things we found, which was fascinating, is autonomy has been, you know, a lot of writers write that autonomy is actually the number one driver of human beings, that people are motivated by autonomy. They want to work independently. We found actually it ranks as 21 out of 23 potential human motivators for millennials. Now, it doesn't mean that no millennials are motivated by working independently in autonomy. It mm -hmm. means it's, it's less of a motivator for, for a majority of people in their 20s and, and early 30s. What we find is that it was we did qualitative interviews as well. A lot of them would tell us, you know, working autonomously, they'd say, that's terrifying. Why would I want to work alone? I want, just as you said, I want my boss to give me coaching and feedback. It's not that I'm needy. I want to know that the work I'm doing has meaning. I want to know that everything I'm doing is in the right trajectory, that I'm, I'm contributing to the business. I'm making things better. And so really fascinating. And yet, by the time you're in your 60s, autonomy is typically the fourth highest of all motivators for, for people. And, and so we're not all the same. Another fascinating one we found was that recognition, gratitude, is three times more important for younger workers than it is for older workers. So again, you know, we tend to clump people together. Our younger workers probably do. Now, not everyone, but many of them are more extrinsically driven, where maybe our older workers are more intrinsically driven, if that makes sense. And so do you think that that is driving this narrative of, you know, millennials are needy when really it's just, hey, like, give me some direction and some guidance here and then validate that my work is meeting that, that guidance criteria? Yeah, I mean, you're spot on. 
And, and what's really fascinating is, you know, you get an older generation says, well, you know, these guys just need too much praise and recognition. I never got that much praise and I turned out okay. You know, you think, well, you didn't really turn out all that great if you really want to be honest, you know. And this, uh, this, this constant need for direction is actually a very good thing. You know, when you think of the speed of business, I mean, early in my career, yeah, business got done at a much slower pace. And the great thing about the millennial generation, and now, uh, Adrian, you said Gen Z. You know, you, you should have said Gen Z. You know that, right? Oh, we're, right. We, yeah, we're talking to an yeah. Aussie. Yeah, it's, to, it's totally Z. It's X Y Z. Okay, and and with 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 Generation Z is the speed of business, and so they're going to check in more often, right? They want to know, hey, how am I doing? How am I doing? And that is an actual. That's actually a very very good thing. The other discovery we made in leading with gratitude is that the the need for a lot of recognition and affirmation is actually the sign of a very healthy because they they they're confident and they they're looking for that feedback that constant feedback so be a bother or something that's unnecessary or over the top you need to lean into that and really embrace it this is a, this is a very good thing we're going to keep everybody on track we're going to keep them on on task and we're going to celebrate these little wins along the way to build that momentum which as you know in sports is is so important, right? We don't celebrate at the final score. We celebrate every opportunity that we have. Good plays, you know, good weather. <laughs> I mean, I, I laugh with my, my friends that are, that are big football fans in the premiership, you know. I said, so when do you start celebrating on the way to the, the Liverpool-Manchester United match? They go, oh, before we leave the house, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, the, the march to the match, you know. I said, well, then why in business do you tell your people, okay, good job, what have you done for me lately? You know, why, why wouldn't you continue that, that great tradition? So again, uh, the, the constant feedback from millennials, it's really a positive thing. You need to lean into that. I couldn't agree more. And, and again, like we were talking about earlier, I think the writing has been on the wall here. You know, again, if you look at products, the way products are developed, the way software is developed in most instances is in an agile way. And the, the, the core idea behind agile is those small feedback loops, you know, build a, build a small prototype, go and test it, take it to the, take it to the managers. And really that's being replicated in just the daily activities of, uh, you know, let's call it just the millennial generation is that constant check-in, that constant feedback. Yes, you're on, you're on track here. No, we need to pivot here. And so, again, you can kind of look at the world around and see these same things playing out in different realms. Um, and, and, and this is why it makes so much sense. One, one thing I heard recently, one, one, uh, one leader was telling us, you know, he says, this, it's not just feedback, he said. They also want to be promoted. They also want to make more money. And he was getting quite frustrated by this. And he runs a technology company. And he was saying, uh, he says, look, the way we do it is you get hired and it's typically about two years. You get then made a senior, uh, you know, technologist. And he says, and he says, I kept trying to badger my millennials and my Gen Z's and Jed Z's. Here we go into uh, to seeing it my way. And he says, so, but finally um, he says, well, what if I did try it there that way? And so I love what he kind of did. He says, I decided to break instead of in, in, you know, a two year to get a promotion, he says, I broke it into, into six different mini promotions. You went from a technologist to a, uh, to a technologist uh, one, to a technologist two. And he says, every four months you could get a promotion, but you had to master these extra skills. You had to, to master. And he says, 
for the for the people, these new hires coming in, he says they were real promotions. They'd you know they'd they'd call mom and dad. They were excited about him. He says I gave him a little bit more money and a, and a, again a different title. He says by the end they were making the same money they would have been. But he says I I finally realized I needed to bend a little bit, and it was amazing what happened. He says he says. I, I, you know, people were sticking around longer. They wanted to get to that next level. I wasn't losing as many of my new people. They knew that it wasn't two years away, that it was just a few more months away, but they also gained new skills because they couldn't get to that next step unless they gained the skill that would get them there. So really cool if we just listen a little bit and realize, you know, let's quit digging our heels in and what can we learn from our new generation coming in? Fantastic. I love that. I want to get into talking about gratitude behaviors because it's another thing that you talk about. And I want to go a little bit deeper into that with you guys. But before I get to that, there's another element in the book where you talk about assuming positive intent. And I think that's a, a, a really helpful mindset change for a lot of leaders. So what do you mean by that? And what's the, and what's the opposite of assuming positive intent? Well, that's a real easy one. The second one is assume negative intent. <laughs> Come on, Cody. <laughs> that was a layup. I wanted to tee you up. Right. <laughs> Start off slow with Chester. Give the tough questions to Adrian. Uh, you know, the assume positive intent is one of my favorite parts of the book, really. It's this idea. And, and you know, we get to spend some time with Hubert Jolie, who is the chairman of Best Buy, you know, the big retailer that took him from a billion-dollar deficit to a billion-dollar surplus. And he said, look, I may be naive. I, I just believe that people come to work every day and they want to do a good job. And in trying to do a good job, they're going to make mistakes. And that's okay. We can fix the mistakes and move on. And in, with that attitude, what he's creating is this, this culture of psychological safety. You know, when you, when you assume negative intent, again, it's putting the fear of God in people. And when you're in a negative environment or where you feel threatened and you make a mistake, the first thing you do is what? You hide it. Mm-hmm. You try to, was that, that was, I mean, that, that was Adrian. <laughs> Funny you should mention that, you know. Something goes wrong and you don't want to be the one that, that brings it up, you know. You're, you're hoping that somebody else tells the boss that the, you know, the warehouse is on fire, right? Because you're going to kill the messenger. The idea of assuming positive intent is, look, we're all trying to do a good job. And along the way, we're going to make mistakes. Let's solve the problem. You are not the problem. We have a problem. Let's solve the problem. And that assuming positive intent, when you've got that culture, when you lead that way, people feel safe to innovate. They feel safe to take you know, risks. They're not afraid to step up and say, we've got to fix this, or I made a mistake. Quick, let's get ahead of it. And you can understand that whether it's a, a team or an organization, uh, that kind of attitude really is liberating for people. And that's the organization. People will join, right? They'll bring their talent and they'll stay. Does that resonate? So have you guys heard of or followed Graham Potter, the English soccer coach and at all? He's, a, he's the head coach of, uh, of Brighton in the, the Premier League right now. Right. But, no, uh, we know Gra- Graham, Graham Crackers. Where you going? <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it the same guy? <laughs> he's a cartoon character is he Graham? <laughs> no. uh so but but so uh Graham potter played english football in the you know second third fourth tiers he eventually took a head coaching role with a small town in northern sweden called ustersund and 
what they built based because he was so upset at how he was treated and the culture of English football, he went and built what's been become known as a no blame culture. So in this tiny town in the North of Sweden, who has, uh, they eventually climbed up into the, the premier division. I think they won basically their way up in successive years. Um, they had players come and play from all over the world, from Africa. They had Israelis and Palestinians playing on the same team at the same time. Uh, they qualified for Europe. They won the Swedish Cup and they went on to beat Arsenal in London in a, in a stadium that's bigger than the town that they come from. And what it was built around was this idea of assuming positive intent. So if I miss a shot, obviously... I didn't mean to miss that shot. We're all trying to achieve the same thing, which is to score a goal. And so it, it was really interesting that his negative experience in what was his workplace, the English soccer culture, he, he stripped that away and said, I hated that. I'm going to build something the exact opposite. And, uh, and, and so it played out in real life in, the, in professional soccer that this is so, so powerful and it's so powerful at crossing so many boundaries that, that we, we assume would be an issue, like Israelis and Palestinians playing on the same team. Um, and, and so, yeah, when you ask does it resonate, it absolutely resonates and I've seen it play out positively. You know, it's it's amazing. You know, you see too coming to the you know the English football uh, Gareth Southgate, what he's done with the the national team in England too, and the remarkable run in the in the World Cup. And you see a lot of that too. You know, I know he's still a controversial figure, and there's anything with English football will be, mm-hmm. but it's still amazing just to see the love that he showed to his players and the culture he had created and the old world that just won't work anymore. And how 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 these players you know, who are all multi-multi-millionaires, would have walked through fire for, for Southgate because of the care that he displayed with them. So it, it's, it's, it, culture is the, is the new wave of leadership. There's no doubt. No doubt. And, and it doesn't mean that you can't still be hard on people. I think that's where, people, where a lot get tripped up is, is, is treat it like a zero and a one. It's not a zero and a one. You can care and drive, you know, a professional athlete hard. And, and drive them hard towards their goals, but you've got to do work with them beforehand. Um, you know, I think you're making a really important point there, Cody, because often when we, the pushback we get, even from the title of the book, leading with gratitude to say, oh, that's for soft leaders. Mm-hmm. No, that's the soft skill. That's a nice to have, not a must have. When you look at really the, the, the best in class, you know, the extraordinary leaders, they're very tough on their people. There's, there's 360 degree accountability, right? It doesn't mean that they don't celebrate along the way. In fact, it's the combination of being demanding and celebratory. I think that really does elevate leaders from being, you know, middle of the pack to extraordinary. And you see it again and again, whether it's a coach of a, a football team or it's the leader of the Ford Motor Company. We, we got to know Alan Mulally quite well. Mm-hmm. He was the one that saved the iconic brand in the last recession. Uh, celebrated. He says, look, it's all about your people. Love them up. You know, you got to love them up. And yet, at the same time, was very demanding of his people. Well, you know, the numbers, again, bore out that that was a winning strategy in that when he took over the Ford Motor Company, their engagement level was at 20%. 20%. Only two out of 10 people considered themselves engaged at work. Not a winning, not a winning, winning formula. When he left, it was over 90% for the full-time employees and union members. 
So incredibly demanding, anything but soft. And yet, you know, very celebratory, very grateful for the sacrifices people were making. And he was very vocal about it every step of the way. Yeah. But you've got to go and you've got to go and talk to them. You've got to go and meet them where they are and you've got to go and empathize with them. And, and I think that's potentially still a gap in, in some leaders that are trying to navigate this is, is just trying to dive into this without actually going to the people that are impacted by it. So, you know, again, that takes time, like we were talking about earlier, but the, the snowball effect does occur with that as well, um, which leads me into what I wanted to talk about, these gratitude behaviours. So you break them into two different categories and we've, we've kind of touched on it, but I, I want to go a little bit deeper with you guys on this. So tell us about the gratitude behaviours that you've outlined in the book. Well, as you mentioned, we do break them into, into seeing, and this is how managers can, can see the value that's being created in better ways. For example, soliciting and acting on input. You know, probably every manager out there thinks, oh, I'm, I'm actually pretty good about getting ideas from my employees. And, and we find one of, the, one of the biggest drivers of engagement is, in, and one of the biggest demotivators is employees say, nobody listens to me. Um, so there are ways to do that in a way that people feel like they are listened to and they have a voice, even if their ideas aren't used, that they feel respected, that they feel their ideas do have worth because, you know, maybe they throw out 10 ideas, maybe nine of them all work, but one may be genius. And so how do you keep people participating? Another idea in there, of course, was what we just mentioned, assuming positive intent. Another is it's really big and important is looking for those small wins. You know, sometimes, as we mentioned earlier, a lot of managers get hung up on, we're so busy right now, especially in this crisis time. I don't have time to be patting people on the back, molly coddling them. You know, they're, they're, they're big people. They need to pull up their, their big boy pants and, uh, and just get to work. What we, what we forget, and, and as Chester mentioned, we talked to a lot of CEOs. One was Ken Chenault, who was the CEO of American Express, 70,000 employees, led the organization for 17 years, one at different times, one of the only African-American CEOs in the entire Fortune 500. Remarkable leader who produced amazing returns for the organization. And what he said to us was that, you know, he says, that's a mistake. If we just recognize at the end of a project, the end of a crisis, he says, if you're going on a journey, he says, you're looking for the little milestones along the way. Oh, I'm supposed to turn left at the red barn. Okay, good. I'm, I'm on the way. I'm, I'm doing the right thing. He says, that's why we recognize every little win along the way. And it comes back to analogous to sports. You know, if we, if we have a kid who's in, uh, you know, soccer and, and we all parents decide, you know, let's, you know, all this clapping for every, every touch of the ball, it's, it's too much. Let's just clap at the end of the game if they win. You know, of course we wouldn't do that. But we feel like that, that's an okay idea in business. Of course it isn't. You know, you have to appreciate every small win because you're letting people know we're on the right path. Keep going. And, and that's why great leaders look for those small wins. So, so that's the first part of seeing. I'll, I'll turn it over to Chester to, to talk about the second idea of expressing. Yeah, expressing, you know, we start right away and we say, do it now, do it often, and don't be afraid. You know, uh, I, and we get a lot of pushback on often, don't we, Adrian? Say, well, you can do it too much. I go, really? When was the last time anybody from your team went home to their family or their spouse and said, you know what? Couldn't get anything done today. 
I'm telling you, it was one celebration after another. They were giving me plaques and cakes and balloons. I mean, seriously, I'm going to start working from home to get anything done. It never happens. You know, I love the leaders that say, you know, when you think you're doing it too much, it's probably about right. So do it now. You know, you think, oh, I'll remember later. No, you won't. Do it now. The, it's that whole primacy recency, you know, and, and, and ever so in sports, right? When somebody makes a good play, you cheer now. You don't say, you know what, I mean, make a note of that. And when the game's over, I'm going to point out to Cody that, you know, that was a good play. No, you do it now. You do it often. And then the idea about don't be afraid. You know, leaders, and, and we see this in our coaching all the time, say, well, if I start doing it, it's going to come across as insincere. You go, yeah, probably. When was the last time you started to do something and you were immediately really good at it? Never. So the more you do it, the better you're going to get. You need to start. You need to start doing it. And then we talk a lot about, you know, tailoring it to the individual. We've, we've talked about this already, about make sure that when the opportunity comes to express that gratitude, that you're doing it in a way that's meaningful to them. Is it an extra assignment? Is it working with customers? Is it time off to spend with their families? Is it, you know, a really cool, like, movie-driven, one-of-a-kind watch, which is what I presented to Adrian. And I'm sure, Adrian, you'll want to tell him about that extraordinary gift that your co-writer came up with one day to really no effect at all. <laughs> well, if we've got a minute, this is a, I think it's a kind of a fun story. So Chester and I, when we were back in um, the corporate world, we, uh, we wrote our first uh, book together for a corporation probably almost 20 years ago now. And Chester, you know, bless his heart, wanted to get me recognized for this achievement. So he went to our CEO and he says, uh, hey, uh, I noticed that Adrian doesn't wear a watch, so he probably will want a really nice watch. And let's bring him into the gala banquet where we're bringing all of our salespeople in. He'll get to meet all these people he doesn't know, and he'll spend a night doing this. And uh, well, Chester's top motivators, we mentioned our motivators assessment earlier, Chester's top motivators include ideas like teamwork and friendship and fun. Those are like top, you know, five for, for Chester. Those ideas for me fall, I think, 21, 22, 17, something like that. They're just not what gets me up and excited about going into work. My top motivators are ideas like creativity, autonomy, and family. Those are my big drivers. So if they'd have thought of a way to recognize me that would have appealed to my motivators, maybe giving me an assignment where I could have been creative or work autonomously or, or a little time to be with my family, I would have really loved that. Um, instead, I got invited to a, a banquet with people I didn't know, sat there awkwardly in an evening uh, event, and got a watch that's unfortunately still in the box uh, 20 years <laughs> later. Now, I appreciated them trying. It just wasn't as uh, as focused as it probably could have been, and it was meaningful. And it actually did lead us to uh, to develop our motivators assessment eventually later, too, because you know, we wanted to make sure that we're developing people and recognizing people in a way that's really, truly meaningful. So I don't mean to sound, uh, you know, ungrateful. Uh, though, he does. Uh, he does sound ungrateful, though, doesn't he, Cody? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he tries to mask it. I, I don't. He does a horrible job at that. 
the, the it's still sitting in the box was the key part for me. It was his, his voice, the tone of his voice changed. Yeah, and it really was. It was that Men in Black, Delta, Hamilton. It really was really cool if, you know, you were a watch, which, of course, is kind of the key to the whole gift. Um, anyway, I know our time is running out here. And, you know, it's been delightful to be with you, Cody. We really are very proud of this work, Leading with Gratitude. And from your work in sports to our work in the corporate world, I think you can see it's, it's a universal application. You know, what we love about what we do is creating great places to work because the ripple effect is, and it's our favorite stat, is that people that are happy and motivated at work are 150% more likely to be happy and motivated in their personal lives. That ripple effect from work to family to community is extraordinary. So our mission really is, is to get more leaders to lead with gratitude, to be more grateful, to be more kind, and to really you know, tailor that experience to the individual and, and grow their teams so that they can grow their families and their communities. So thank you very much for having us on. It's been awesome. No, not a problem, guys. Uh, where can, uh, particularly the coaches or the leaders that listen to this show, where can they find the new book and, and everything that you guys have got going on? Uh, Leading with Gratitude is available wherever fine books are sold. Um, you can learn more about us at thecultureworks.com or or check us out on our website, uh, adriangostick.com or chesterelton.com. And, and we'd love to connect. And if there's anything we can help uh, anybody with uh, during this this crazy time where we're happy to, to help with whatever we can do. Yeah. And, and uh, follow us on LinkedIn. We, we publish a lot of good material there and we actually have a wonderful book site leading with with some fun downloads there as well. So we just keep giving, don't we, Adrian? I mean, they call us the givers. <laughs> There's 13 websites you can go to right there. For any kind of help. Yeah. Giver and giving, 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 you know, some people say, you know, are, are they like Albert Schweitzer, Mother Teresa? No, but you know, I mean, close, right? Just more, more like the Dalai Lama. I think yeah, we're, we're kind yeah, of exactly. Dalai Lama-esque, if that's so, the word. So much giving that it goes onto the second page on Google. You've got oh, 10 different sites. <laughs> yeah. We've got uh, two, three seven pages on Wikipedia. It's, it's, it's really <laughs> embarrassing in a, in a delightful one. Lads, it's been a blast. You're speaking my language. So thank you. Keep doing great work. And uh, thanks for coming on today. Same Take to care, you. Take care, my friend. Yep. Call anytime. <laughs>